0: analysis, and reaction. Here is NL News Director Shane Woodford on 610 AM.
1: Good morning. Thank you for tuning in. A nice-looking day shaping up here in Kamloops. Oh, my God, is it cold. It is bitterly cold out there. Uh, we'll try to warm you up with some good topics, and we have plenty of that on the show ahead. Uh, we're going to dive into uh, Western dissatisfaction with our federal government, with the Angus Reid Institute. That's coming up in a little bit. We're going to talk about uh, ICBC's woes and the desire out there among British Columbians for some choice. Uh, we'll have the Insurance Bureau of Canada's Aaron Sutherland on the program in a little bit. And we'll also uh, end with our weekly chat with uh, Jeffrey Myers, a lecturer, a lawyer up at We'll talk U.S. politics, but also an interesting twist uh, from Mr. Meyer's perspective on the Plecas report. But first, the Combined Forces Special Enforcement Unit's uh, Gang Task Force came into Kamloops, uh, spent four days here uncovering a shocking array of weapons. Let's discuss that now. Pleasure to be joined on the phone by the Combined Forces Special Enforcement Unit, Staff Sergeant uh, Lindsey Houghton. How are you, Lindsey? I'm great, Shane. How are you? I am well. Um, So you're no stranger to uh, the whole gang violence dealio. Uh, You've dealt with your fair share of it uh, down the Lower Mainland. A little more unusual up here in Kamloops, although uh, we still get uh, the same sort of gang activity, but it doesn't end up in the headlines as often it does in, say, Surrey. But uh, that changed uh, about a week or two ago when we had a couple of uh, daylight shootings here in different parts of town. Uh, Caught my eye, you guys then came up and spent four days here really cracking down on the local drug trade and just... I was I was blown away by what you found. Uh, give me an idea of the synopsis of, of the result of your work up here.
2: Yeah, like you
3: say, we were up there for four days uh, last week, and Camloops unfortunately isn't immune to the gang violence and the violence that's associated to that. Uh, we were there. We stopped seventy-eight vehicles, uh, one hundred and thirty-two people. Uh, most of those people, in fact, almost the majority, were connected to the street-level drug trade, which most people probably know is uh, one or two degrees away from uh, what most people would consider as gangs or organized crime activity, Uh, our members seized a lot of weapons uh, and a lot of instruments that could be used as weapons uh, and a lot of drugs. Um, Just to give you a quick rundown, uh, four sets of brass knuckles, a couple of spring-loaded knives, machetes, axes, um fixed bladed knives a couple cans of pepper spray uh, including one that had uh, a a marker on it with instructions about how to spray what they call goose which in uh, street talk is police officers um, uh, in the face uh, four hatchets nine folding knives uh, a little bit of ammunition an empty pistol holster and, and one unique item that we don't see too often a lock picking kit
1: Unbelievable. Um, one of the things that that you that immediately jumps to mind. I mean, Camloops, I, I think is a fairly safe community, uh, but in light of the shootings uh, over the last little while and this tawdry list of stuff that seems to be floating around out there, is this a concern when it comes to public safety, Lindsay or no?
3: Well, you know what, these types of items uh, have been used for a very long time. I've certainly seen it in my 20-plus year year, year career down here in the coast. Um, You know, the individuals who are involved in the street-level drug trade or or street-level criminal activity, doesn't matter if you're in Vancouver, Surrey, Kelowna, Camelot, or Prince George, this is sort of the tools of the trade for them. Uh, Inevitably, when we stop these people and talk to them, they'll say, oh, you know, I've got a knife and I'm using it for my protection. Um, and then that begs further questions by our officers about, well, why do you need a knife uh, or pepper spray for your protection? Uh, and then the conversation, as I think most people would understand, go towards you know these the this person potentially using them as weapons. And obviously, we don't want people to get stabbed or cut uh, or injured in any way. So uh, the majority of people um, uh, happily, voluntarily relinquish these items over to us for safekeeping.
1: Give me your assessment of of, uh, your sense of of the Kamloops drug trade. I mean, obviously, no community is immune from this kind of thing. Uh, Some communities end up in the headlines more than others, I suppose. But uh, it happens here as much as it happens anywhere else, and it's obviously of concern. Uh, What's going on here, to your knowledge, as far as sort of uh, gang activity that, that could be sort of behind some of the stuff we're seeing lately? Yeah, it's
3: it's an extension of the gang-organized crime activity that we see here down at the coast. Um, you know, Kamloops, Kelowna, Vernon, Prince George, Williams Lake, uh, all of these sort of mid- to larger-sized cities outside of the Metro Vancouver region uh, aren't immune to this. Uh, you know, anywhere you get individuals uh, who have... Uh, where they're consumers of uh, illicit narcotics, whether it's cocaine, crystal meth, even opiates, which we all know uh, the majority of those contain fentanyl now and uh, the the tragedies that are often associated with that, Uh, you're going to have individuals and groups who look to exploit the most vulnerable. Uh, And and Kamloops, uh, sadly, has those. Um, you know, one thing I will say, and, and, you know, your listeners probably remember the name Konam Sherzad, uh, who was one of the Red Scorpions leaders uh, up there, and, and he was gunned down last year, um, you know, these incidents happen uh, in, in our communities, despite uh, not just the police's best efforts, uh, and I can tell you that the Candlewoods RCMP are, are doing yeoman's work uh, and engage with us regularly, uh, but often the best efforts of community uh, sometimes uh, results in these things still happening. Um, so that's why we need to collaborate very closely with not just the police in jurisdictions from a CFSCU perspective, uh, but very closely with the community to try and target-harden uh, the communities, uh, and that's one of the reasons why we go to schools and, and talk with kids about uh some of the dangers of getting involved in that lifestyle uh you know some of these kids may find themselves carrying these knives at some point and they need to know what the dangers are
1: uh the school program is is very good and i think it's a it's a great way to tackle uh the overall issue but uh is there is there a responsibility in joe citizen or uh local governments to do something to help out on this front as well Lindsay, or no
3: yeah, you know what? Government has made significant investments in CFS, CUBC over the years, and and in policing and public safety. Um, you know, we we anticipate more of that in the, in the coming years. Um, but you know, you hit you hit a nail on the head there. It's it's up to an incumbent on all of us uh, as members of the community, like the police are, uh, and like government are. Um, you know, we need to look at prevention. We need to look at. Or early intervention uh, to stop the flow of young people getting involved in this activity and thinking it's okay to do this.
1: Are you seeing a decrease in the amount of young people flowing into this lifestyle? Are we making an impact there, or no?
3: We are making an impact, and you know, I can tell you, for, at least from CFSU's perspective, uh, we've helped intervene uh, in over two hundred individuals. Uh, in, their, in their families and in their cases, if you will, over the last couple of years through our gang intervention and exiting programming, uh, and over the last six years since we implemented the End Gang Life Initiative, which many people may have heard of, um, we've been able to successfully get people out. Uh, and so whether that's saving their life or potentially saving the life of others, uh, we see those as successes. We're making a difference.
1: Were you shocked by the results of what sort of came up in Kamloops? I mean, I I looked at the press release and went, oh, my God, uh, we're seeing some pretty significant (laughs) numbers and some crazy weapons here. Is this sort of what you see every day around the province, or is this unusual?
3: Uh, That number is a bit unusual. It's a bit high. Uh, Knowing how uh, professionally aggressive and, and on the ball our uniformed gang enforcement team members are, I'm absolutely not surprised that they're stopping and checking the right people, uh, and with the, with the help of the Camelops RCMP, uh, their actions are very directed and targeted in, in the right areas, uh, but those numbers are a bit high. Hopefully, uh, if and when we go back up there, we don't see that type of volume uh, of weapons again.
1: And speaking of that, will you guys make a return trip uh, in light of what you found and perhaps that puts Camelops higher on the priority list to put more attention to or no?
3: Yeah, you know, we're certainly looking at, uh, you know, uh, every time uh, an RCMP detachment or or municipal agency asks for us to come, uh, like Kamloops did last week, uh, we'll jump in our cars and get there as quickly as we can. Uh, I fully anticipate we'll be back up in Kamloops at some point in the near future.
1: And this is a bit of a crystal ball question but I mean you've had a long uh, career dealing with this kind of thing, um, not specific to the two cases in Kamloops but just in general. How, how difficult is it in, in, when you're dealing with, with gang life to track down you know, some of these people behind these targeted shootings, I assume that's not an easy task.
3: It's not easy. It's often very, very complicated and, you know, regardless of some of the the challenges that we have on the legal side in order to prove things and and get them to a certain standard for Crown Counsel to uh, approve and lay charges and then get through the court process. Uh, a lot of the complexities uh, are around the gathering of evidence, uh, and then, of course, having people with knowledge come forward. Uh, ultimately, there are people, in almost every case, who who have information. Um, those are the people we need, especially in these often very isolated or insulated groups. Um, we need that human intelligence to come forward, and, and often that's what breaks these cases open for us.
1: Perfect stuff. Uh, Lindsay, thanks. Appreciate this, and uh, thanks for all the good work up here.
3: Yeah, no
1: problem, man. Take care. And that's uh, the Combined Forces Special Enforcement Unit Staff Sergeant Lindsey Houghton talking about the four-day crackdown on the street-level drug trade and the shocking number of weapons they found. Lindsey, by the way, good Kamloops kid, grew up here. Uh, we'll take a quick break on the Woodford Show. On the other side, we'll talk to the Angus Reed Institute about Western political alienation.
0: That's coming next. Local news now. Radio NL, 610 a.m. and RadioNL.com. You're listening to Shane Woodford on Radio NL 6 10 a.m. and RadioNL.com.
1: Welcome back to The Woodford Show. Those of you, uh, some may remember, uh, when Prime Minister Stephen Harper won and became Prime Minister for the first time in his acceptance speech, he said the West wants in and the West is now in. Uh, Here we are some 12, 13, 14 years later, and it looks like the West is not in. Uh, Talking to uh, Ian Holiday, who is a research associate at the Angus Reid Institute about Western alienation. Ian, good morning.
2: How are you? Good morning. I'm doing well, thanks.
1: Good. Uh, you guys did a, did a survey of Canadians, and uh, interestingly enough, uh, you put the option there of a Western Canada party, uh, and it went over surprisingly well. Uh, give me an idea sort of the barometer of dissatisfaction out there in the four Western provinces.
2: Sure. I mean, this is the fourth uh, installment of a big four-part study on Western alienation that we've been doing, and this one looks specifically at some of the potential political consequences of feelings of of alienation and and frustration with Ottawa in Western Canada. Uh, And so, as you said, when we put the possibility of a Western Canada party a hypothetical party that would advocate for that would only run candidates in the West, the four westernmost provinces, and that uh, would advocate for Western, um, you know, policy goals and Western inclusion in Confederation. Uh, we find a surprising number of people, 35 percent in Western Canada, saying that they would support such a party if it were an option in an upcoming election.
1: Just out of curiosity, and I don't know if you uh, if you factored this in or not, or whether you asked people about this, uh, but do you think that any of this is directly related to having a, a Liberal Party government? The liberal Party is traditionally never done very well, sort of Manitoba West, although they had a bit of a breakthrough in B.C. in the last federal election, but uh, do you think that factors in the fact that a lot of Canadians in Western Canada aren't naturally sort of um, Liberal-leaning, more sort of right of centre than left of?
2: I think that is is certainly a part of what we're seeing in this poll. But it's worth noting that 30% of people who voted for the Liberals in Western Canada in 2015 say that they would vote for a Western Canada party if one were an option. Um, Similarly, 23% of past NDP supporters say that they would vote for a Western Canada party if one existed. So it is a... um, you know certainly there is a right of center base in this part of the country that has uh, long been among those feeling the most alienated from the rest of Canada but at the same time this research suggests that there is the potential to tap into frustrations on the you know in the in the center or even on the left of the political spectrum that are still sort of regionally motivated i think it's an open question though because this is a hypothetical party that doesn't exist, doesn't have a platform, doesn't have a leader, it's an open question as to whether a, a potential party could uh, you know, form that would be able to appeal to both the traditional sort of angry Western right-wing base and some of these other individuals uh, who have voted for other parties that aren't the conservatives in past elections and say they'd be open to it. If a party could do that, could craft a message that appeals to Westerners regardless of their place on the political spectrum, I think this poll suggests that they would have uh, a, a great deal of strength electorally.
1: I wonder how much of that would be sort of the, the attitude of a pox in all your houses. Uh, maybe just Canadians regardless of their stripe, there's a good chunk of them uh, in Western Canada who are just tired of the political class that we've seen so far and are just hungry for something that they can relate to as opposed to the options on the table.
2: Absolutely, and I think that that was a big factor in the rise of the Reform Party, which of course started as a Western party in the 1980s. Um, obviously, they ended up having they ended up being a or attempting to be a national party and having a very specific sort of conservative populist bent. But they were also the the original sort of messengers of that West wants in message, which is one that you know, previous uh, parts of this four-part study have have looked at um, the sort of uh, degree to which Western Canadians are sort of dissatisfied with their uh, position in Canadian Confederation today. And that's true in BC as well as in Alberta. Alberta is maybe feeling it a bit more strongly, particularly because of, uh, you know, the struggles with the pipeline, uh, their ability to get a pipeline, any pipeline in any direction approved, is uh, is very frustrating to a lot of Albertans right now. Not as much to many in British Columbia, but when we ask, you know, do you agree or disagree with the statement, my region of the country is treated fairly by the national government, uh, people in B.C. and Alberta are in agreement that their region is not treated fairly nationally. So a party that could tap into that frustration and unite... British Columbians and Albertans and Saskatchewaners and Manitobans uh, would be a force to be reckoned with electorally
1: interesting I still I still think there's some partisan uh, factoring it I mean if the Stephen Harper government had bought the trans Mountain pipeline and we were in, and they were still in power today I think and you did the study I think you'd find vastly different feelings just based on uh, some of that deep resentment against the liberals you'll find in, in the province of Alberta and, and in, in pockets elsewhere um, qu- uh, big question here is uh, how do we deal with all this stuff I mean if if, if if people in Western Canada are unhappy and it comes to some kind of uh, tumultuous peak uh, how do we deal with it
2: that's an interesting question and, and one that we put to Eastern Canadians in terms of what kind of overall approach they should take if there is a sort of Western, uh, if not separatist, then at least uh, Western sort of uh, assertiveness uh, movement that is, is happening. Um, and we find that that there is a good deal of uh, division among sort of people in Ontario and points east around how the federal government should respond to this, whether they should be taking a, a soft approach that sort of focuses on maintaining a good relationship with the West, or, you know, a tougher approach that would involve sort of standing firm and, and uh, playing hardball around defending what are, what are perceived as national interests. Um, I think a, a question that we put to respondents in this survey that's worth highlighting is about, uh, you know... Alberta separatism and whether Alberta would, in fact, try to leave Canada. Most people across the country, including most people in Western Canada, don't think that that's a realistic possibility. But 50% in Alberta say that it could very well happen. So there's a bit of a misalignment there uh, within the West, certainly in terms of a, a an Alberta separatist movement turning into a broader Western Canadian separatist movement. Um we find that that people in B.C. and Manitoba are not particularly keen on joining with Alberta if it tries to leave Confederation.
1: Interesting times. Ian, thanks so much for taking some time to chat this morning. Appreciate it.
2: Yes, thank
1: you for having me. That's Ian Holliday. He's a research associate at the Angus Reid Institute. They just commissioned a study uh, that clearly shows some problems in Western Canada for the current uh, Liberal federal government. We'll take a quick break, uh, get caught up at the bottom of the hour, and on the other side, we'll talk about ICBC and insurance choices.
0: Radio NL. RadioNL.com, Local news now. Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Shane Woodford on 610 a.m. and RadioNL.com. Good
1: morning. Welcome back to the Woodford Show. There are a handful of topics out there that cut across political partisan lines that basically infuriate or provoke strong feelings among just about everybody. Housing is one of those. Uh, Auto insurance is definitely the other. ICBC, as we know, a bit of a dumpster fire, as described by our Attorney General. We're trying to figure out how to deal with that. Uh, But it seems like people want some choices. Joining me to talk about uh, auto insurance choices, Vice President for the Insurance Bureau of Canada's Pacific Region, Aaron Sutherland. Aaron, how are you?
4: Thanks so much for having me on today.
1: Yeah, appreciate that. Okay, so you guys have uh, taken a bit of a barometer, a poll of your own to kind of figure out uh, what British Columbians want when it comes to auto insurance, and there seem to be some pretty strong feelings out there. Uh, what did you find?
4: Yeah, and, and it's really not surprising. I mean, I think we all know that we're not really very happy with uh, the auto insurance system we have here in this province and, and the the value we're receiving from our crown insurer and ICBC, but we wanted to to quantify exactly what that was. and. And the results we found were that 82% of British Columbians uh, want choice. They want to see ICBC open to competition, and they want to have the ability to shop around for their auto insurance needs. And perhaps most surprisingly, that position cuts right across party lines, as you said. It's not just BC Liberal supporters. It's not just BC Green supporters. uh, Even an overwhelming majority of NDP supporters want to see ICBC opened up. So this, this isn't an ideological position. This is just a common sense, practical solution that, frankly, is, is how, life, how auto insurance works in most other Canadian provinces today
1: yeah the uh, the province uh, which ultimately has the the choice to pull the trigger on, on opening it up for competition or not uh, doesn't look like it's going to uh, while they describe it as a dumpster fire and certainly a, a fiscal threat uh, for for British Columbians they, they really seem intent Aaron on, on ensuring that it works whatever that means within the constraints of how it's how it's structured right now so how do you deal with that
4: yeah, so, you know, we've heard from government they're committing to, committed to reforming, to fixing ICBC, uh, to try and get rate increases back in line with inflation. And so we're going to see a lot of changes in our auto insurance system this year, uh, many of them good. Some some of them from a, from, you know, the best practices from across the country, the rest of other insurers look a little bit quizzically at. But what's most important here is how do we start improving the affordability of auto insurance for drivers? And everything we've seen to date points to continued rate increases in the year ahead Whereas we know that if we opened ICBC to competition, brought that competitive incentive, that improvement in efficiencies that can come with that, drivers could save up to $325 each and every year uh, by shopping around to find the best product at the best price. It's a it's a choice that they they they're craving. They want. You know, 82% of British Columbians want the ability to shop around. And it's, frankly, it's a solution that could really start to improve the affordability of a very unaffordable product that we have here in this province.
1: We look at examples across the country, uh, and I'm of two minds when it comes to insurance. Uh, I mean, I think we pay way too much, way too much. Um, but you look at Saskatchewan, there's a public system that seems to work. There's some fairly uh, interesting rates there. Ontario, not a public system, more private than anything else, and, and they lead the, the country or the country up there at the top for insurance rates. So looking at those two examples, how can we say that private insurance is the answer here?
4: Well, so when you when you look at the numbers that come from the General Insurance Statistical Agency, this is the national body of regulators, uh, the data that comes from that and from ICBC will tell you that we here in British Columbia pay more for auto insurance than anyone else in this country, full stop. We pay just about $1,700 on average. Uh, in Ontario, they pay $1,450, uh, and in Saskatchewan, they pay much, much less. Now, we don't usually compare B.C. to places like Saskatchewan, Manitoba, and Quebec because their systems are just so different uh, in in those provinces, you can't sue for pain and suffering, for example. But even where we see, you know, systems like that, in Quebec, it's actually the private sector that insures your vehicle, and Quebec has the lowest auto insurance premiums in this country. So, you know, this really should be about what are best practices here, uh, what can BC learn from other provinces, and really how do we make sure we're getting the most value for our auto insurance dollar. And one of the best ways we can ensure that we're getting that is by giving people choice. So if they don't like the price they're paying, They don't like the product they're getting. They can take their business elsewhere and find something cheaper. You can't do that under a monopoly. Uh, But if you opened ICBC up to competition and choice, you could.
1: How would you open up to competition and choice? Would you scrap it entirely and just open it up to uh, insurance companies A, B, C, and D? Or would you just open up the basics so that ICBC competes with whomever else? How would you go about
4: that? Well, you know, it's a really good question. There's been a variety of ideas floated. Um, when we, in our polling, we heard that British Columbians actually quite like the idea of turning ICBC into a co-op, uh, making it owned by drivers, getting it out, pulling it out from under uh, under government, uh, and then opening it to competition. So you don't have to see ICBC disappear entirely. Uh, But you do have to open it up, give drivers that choice. If they like ICBC, they like what they're getting, then they could stick with it. If they don't, they could take their business elsewhere. And, again, it's it's that competitive incentive that that would bring that would really force and ensure that ICBC was operating as efficiently as it could be to, again, deliver the best bang for our buck here in this province. Because, unfortunately, that's just not what we're seeing today.
1: It's interesting, uh, B.C. is one of the only provinces in the country that doesn't go the no-fault route, but there seemed to be very little appetite for that in your survey of British Columbians.
4: Yeah, so that's another thing that said loud and clear. While there is some support, or actually quite a bit of support, for um, you know limits on payments for minor injuries, a little over 70% of British Columbians like that idea, and we're going to see see that uh, come into effect this April. When you think about going further than that, you know, eliminating the right to sue, that is something that British Columbians don't favor. Only 10% of respondents said that they would they would strongly support moving in that direction. Um, so, with that in mind, if we're not looking at a no-fault system, again, similar to Saskatchewan or Manitoba or Quebec, um, if, if we're not looking at that, then really, you know, a solution is staring us right in the face. That is how it's done in, again, virtually every dur- jurisdiction in North America Uh, In virtually every other aspect of our life is, okay, let's see if someone else can deliver this product more efficiently, more cost-effectively, and again, deliver more value for British Columbians. Until we see if someone else can do things differently, we're likely going to continue to see rate increases year after year after year.
1: Yeah, and I struggle with that because I think, and I think your your poll reflects pretty accurately a sense of dissatisfaction uh, with what we pay in auto insurance. So I just, I mean, it's probably a no-brainer question, but um, if we keep seeing rate increases, as we are going to see for the near future, do you think people are just going to get more and more infuriated with this situation?
4: Well, when we when we think about polling, uh, similar polling that was done a little over a year ago, uh, support for competition was seventy-eight percent. Uh, just under, so it's it's gone up about five percent in the last year. Uh, if it can, if we continue to see these rate increases, if IC, ICBC continues to lose potentially billions of dollars each and every year, and cost taxpayers. Uh, and prevents, you know, uh, provincial investments in other areas, at what point are we going to say enough is enough, we need to look for other solutions, we need to look at best practices across this country, and again, we need to see if someone else can deliver this more effectively, more efficiently, and more affordably uh, than what we're seeing here in B.C.
1: What is it about ICBC that, that has governments digging in their heels? Because I find it interesting that, uh, obviously, we have a current NDP government, uh, more left of centre than anything, but uh, the B.C. Liberals are in power for sixty. Here, it's more right of centre uh, and had the power to pull the trigger to, to open it up to competition, but they seem to uh, be as entrenched against doing that as the NDP government uh, is. So why, why do these different sort of politically footed parties get so set on this model?
4: Well, you know, certainly change, uh, this would be a a very big change for British Columbians. Uh, This would bring us in line with, again, most of the rest of this country and virtually all of North America. Um, But change is always difficult, and so, you know, perhaps there simply hasn't been the public voice calling for this. Uh, That is changing greatly now, and it's pretty clear. An overwhelming majority of British Columbians want to see ICBC opened up. They want to see competition. Uh, And when we look regionally and, you know, you look at folks in the interior, uh, over 90% uh, of, of listeners in your area they want to see competition. That's what our, our polling has has told us. So again, no matter where you look in the province, no matter which party you're affiliated with, they want you know drivers here in BC want to see ICBC opened up. Uh, and really, we're just looking at you know the political leaders in this province to see who's going to commit to doing this.
1: Aaron, a pleasure. Thank you, sir.
4: Thanks so much for having me.
1: Aaron Sutherland, Vice President for the Insurance Bureau of Canada's Pacific Region, talking about uh, people out there are sick and tired of paying out the nose for ICBC rates, and they want to see some competition. But again, that is a tough nut to crack. The BC Liberals certainly didn't do it. The NDB government doesn't look like they want to either. We'll take a quick break here on the Woodford Show. On the other side, we'll do our weekly touch base with uh, Jeffrey Myers up at TRU to talk U.S. politics, but also something very interesting from Jeff on the Plekis Report. That'll happen right after this.
0: News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. The voice of your community, you're listening to Shane Woodford on 610 AM and RadioNL.com.
1: Good morning and always a good touch base with uh, Jeffrey Myers, who's a lawyer and lecturer up at Thompson Rivers University to talk American politics, although we're going to have a bit of a twist this morning. But uh, good morning, Jeff. How are you?
5: Good morning. Nice to speak with you, Shane.
1: Yeah, and I speak with you as well. Uh, Like I said, we usually talk American politics, and we certainly will again, but uh, I wanted to start off with something with you that uh, you you and I were talking about off air that I found rather intriguing. Uh, The Plekis report, uh, which is uh, Speaker Daryl Plekus issued that 76-page report uh, a week or two ago that's caused uh, a bit of a bombshell throughout the province, uh, a story that's very much still ongoing. But I was very intrigued to to hear that you're actually using that report in a classroom setting at TRU. Give me an idea what's going on there.
5: Well, what I'm doing is I'm teaching a torts class this term, and torts are um, basically civil wrongs. The most, um, and there's a variety of different kinds of civil wrongs. You know, you can think of things like the tort of battery or the tort of negligence or, um, you know, uh, the, there's all kinds of different torts. Um, and one of them is uh, misfeasance in public office. And this means a kind of wrongdoing uh, by somebody in public office, which there can be a civil suit for. Now, it's separate from criminal liability, but it's a form of... Um, of action which can be taken against public officials who misuse public office. So I thought, what better learning tool than to have students read the Plecas report and think about misfeasance in public office in the in the context of um, of, uh, of 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 what's going on in terms of the BC legislature and this unfolding scandal?
1: That's really interesting. What uh, I mean is, uh, what do you kind of think that the students will sort of come back with after they read this thing?
5: Well, I mean, I think it's it, look. I think it's pretty. It's pretty alarming to see what exactly. One, the the thing. It's a very compelling read. I've read it myself. Um, in in some senses, it reminds me of um, of um, Swift's famous *Gulliver Travels*, with the role of Gulliver being trade, played by uh, Speaker uh, Plekis. And I say that because the the whole account of the first part of the um, it, of the report is his account of the um, spending excesses. Um, carried out by um, the sergeant at arms and by the clerk mr lens and, and uh, Mr. James in terms of um, you know foreign travel and you know famously the purchasing of a huge amount of liquor and a wood splitter and all kinds of things that were totally unjustifiable, but he 's reporting along all these things that happened while he 's participating in advance in real time and saying things like well i wasn't i wanted i wasn 't sure if this was proper it did seem odd to me I was making a note to record it in the future, however I wanted to get the culture of the place first and now i realize this was all wrong and i'm reporting it and it's sort of the la- it, and it's sort of hard to put it down and think that Gar- that uh, mr pleckus is anything other than either somebody who is very gullible or you know sort of realized that they were wrong after the fact and has some responsibility for all of this himself of course he's a very divisive character because of his the fact that he's propping up the NDP government and he's ostensibly uh, a liberal MLA so there's all kinds of knives that are out for him but the report itself I don't think makes him look very good but what the problem is is in, is is these kinds of scandals erupt from time to time and they've certainly I, I don't know if your listeners will remember but about probably six or seven years ago there was a similar and even more wide-ranging scandal that it was involving not just um, staff of or officers of the House but uh, the actual elected members of the House in the UK about six or seven years ago, I don't know if you remember this. People, you know, MLAs from all parties and all stripes, you know, buying themselves big screen TVs and you know, second homes where they weren't paying rent. Uh, and the question of um, you know who was responsible for that and what ends up happening. What ends up being apparent is that oftentimes legislatures or parliaments are, um, you know, they're they're internally administered kind of, and sometimes they have informal or less than. Um, uh, establish established rules and oversight you know for their employers uh they kind of operate in a kind of gray zone and in many cases the types of activities that would be you know challenged by you know internal accounting or human resources in a regular uh field uh even in the public sector uh, end up escaping scrutiny or being sort of subject to kind of abusive practices which over time are normalized this happens a lot in legislatures and parliaments, and you know I think it's not a stretch to argue that the results of this scandal that happened six or seven years ago in the UK, around the patter- spending patterns of MPs there, uh, you know, led to the kind of um, disgruntlement and I think cynicism that people have around their governments and elites, and it probably wasn't such an indirect road from there to Brexit, right? And so in BC, you know, we've had for a long time a lot of reporting about you know um, corruption in our political system. And um so a lot of that reporting has come from in fact American newspapers. It's the New York Times that reported on a lot of the elections laws uh and the corruption that exists here during the Christie Clark era. Um, but now we see this kind of hangover effect that's being exposed in the context of these high ranking officers of the House who aren't accountable to the electorate but should be accountable to the House and um, what 's being revealed is is that the oversight isn 't as strict or as transparent as it ought to be again m l a spending is online so people can take a look at it and that 's a good thing but these officers of the house appear to be you know sort of um personally gaining from their roles and uh, those expenses have not been scrutinized to date so there 's obviously an r c m p investigation going on there 's possible possibilities of fraud uh, there's a, and there's a a possibility of a lot of other kinds of serious uh wrongdoing going on so I mean, the lesson I think I take with my students, you know, when I make this point, whether it's in a public law context, which I'm not teaching this year, or whether it's in a tort law context that I am teaching this year, is that, you know, we have very stereotypical ideas about our own society and our own form of government as being, you know, um, free from corruption and on the up and up and clear and transparent and an exemplar to the world. And, you know, we tend to have, in fact, very kind of, I almost racially inflicted inflicted things of this. We're frequent to describe, you know, ban councils in in reserve lands as being corrupt. We frequently describe governments of non-Western countries as being subject to forms of corrupt and obvious corrupt practices. And we regard our own government says, you know, being guilty of some sorts of negligence and oversight from time to time, but largely being in good faith and not carrying out like large scale um, forms of uh, fraud. And in fact, I think that that's a luxury we can no longer afford. And it's hubris to think that that's the case.
1: Uh, Last little sort of and more of an observation than a question, but from where I'm sitting and somebody who's uh, covered this story uh, from its inception, um, it's fascinating to me to see this report and its reaction and reception in the court of public opinion versus whatever we might see in the court of law, which hasn't happened yet, or I'm not sure if it even will. But it'll be fascinating to see how that report plays out in a legal setting as opposed to the way it's playing out with the outrage among the people right now.
5: Yeah, well, so I mean, there's a, the RCMP, I think, is doing an investigation right now, and the outcome of that investigation you know, will re- reveal whether there's sufficient evidence for the Crown to recommend um, charges. And then again, there's also the question of, um, you know, misfeasance in public office, again, as a kind of, a, of avenue for civil liability. But in this case, um, you know, I think that's probably unlikely for a variety of reasons I won't get into, but it's going to, I think, public, the the political and public results of this can be just as significant as the formal legal ones if there's a call for new oversight regimes, and new forms of accountability, Right.
1: Completely. Uh, let's turn our attention south of the border now. Uh, not a whole lot, uh, unusually, considering the amount of activity on the scene on uh, the last few weeks. But over the last uh, time since you and I chatted, there has been a ton of uh, movement on the Mueller probe and uh, anything like that. Oh, that said, uh, President Donald Trump did do a pretty wide-ranging interview with CNN on Super Bowl Sunday, and, and the, the subject matter did come up. Um important to note, Jeff, that he asked or was asked by the interviewer uh whether he would want the Mueller report to be revealed publicly. Uh and his response was it's totally up to the attorney general. Totally up to the attorney general. Uh and then even added, well, you know, on the collusion thing, the Mueller report said that it had nothing to do with my campaign. I will note the Mueller report is not out and no one's seen <laughs> it, so we don't know it says that or not.
5: Yeah, um well I mean I think uh, for starters uh You know, he has, it is true that it's up to the attorney general to make, to determine what to do effectively with uh, the Mueller report. So I think that there's going to be, look, I think some of the um, oversight uh, committees in Congress that have now changed hands in the House of Representatives from Republican to Democrat, which are going to do, are going to want those uh, reports, and they're very likely going to want to make them public as well. So I think there's going to be significant pressure um, from within the checks and balance system within the u s system of governments to have that out um and I think you know it's it's it 's probably it's it's it 's not clear you know again when the report 's going to come out for now there 's still this interim uh, attorney general and the interim attorney general mr Whitaker like the inc- likely incoming to be confirmed attorney general um mr Barr i mean have both expressed publicly a kind of sentiment of um uh you know, critical, you know, view, in jaded view of the Mueller investigation viewed as kind of a corrupt investigation, echoing what Mr. Trump has said, highly unusual for attorney generals to take that type of position. But we know that one of the reasons that Mr. Trump fired Mr. Sessions was because of his unwillingness to sort of get involved. Is Uh, Right decision to recuse himself uh, from the decision, and his discomfort with Rod Rosenstein, who was the Deputy Attorney General, overseeing the matter whom he knew to want to see the Mueller investigation through. However, Mr. Barr, in his uh, hearings before uh, the Senate, has made very clear that he would not disband or otherwise stop the Mueller investigation in terms of what and how much is going to be public. I think there will be a fight around that, but I think Congress also has some subpoena powers. It's not entirely. Going, it's not like the Attorney General can just unilaterally decide not to release it and then there's no recourse available. I think there's, there's certainly going to be heavy, heavy public uh, pressure. Um, but again, uh, how much or what part um, and when, we don't know. Pure speculation
1: yeah um and the other thing that and it's just sort of a tangent on this but um, I, I one of the things that kind of gets me and, and I had some feedback on our, our segment from last week and it kind of echoed that line you get in some right-wing streams of thought about oh well hey there's no collusion here I mean there's nothing to do between the Russia and and mr Trump or his campaign and I will note I mean there's 199 criminal charges covering 39 mm. people a number of them are Russian uh, the, the question of whether there is or is not collusion is one that has not been answered yet, but there's pretty heavy evidence so far leaning in one direction on this thing.
5: Well, first, let's say that the last, is it, in anticipation of those kinds of uh, responses that in the last few weeks I have taken up significant airtime listing the number of indictments, but also the number of guilty pleas that have been um, entered into, which suggest that they're um, w- to a body of crimes which combine. To suggest the existence of collusion, which I've acknowledged, as has any other legal expert, is not a as not a crime with criminal consequences. It's a political crime, and the consequences of committing collusion are that you can be subject to impeachment, right? But the underlying crimes are crimes of um, conspiracy and campaign finance offenses, and also obstruction crimes, which are crimes of, designed to cover up those underlying crimes, whether they were successful or not. And there have been um, significant indictments and a significant amount of evidence. Uh, um, and not just circumstantial evidence. Uh, and there's also been a significant number of guilty pleas of people very close to the president um, in and around those um, crimes. So, again, there's no strict uh, legislative definition of collusion, like there is obstruction of justice, which would likely be the crime which was the basis for somebody like Mr. Trump to be impeached, um, and in some of these conspiracy crimes which combine to uh, make uh, what we describe as collusion. But the whole purpose of the uh, Mueller report was to determine the nature extent and degree to which the trump campaign worked with or uh, colluded if you will with uh, russian uh, interests to influence the outcome of the campaign and the evidence is piling up to the extent that it did so again the collusion is not a term of art it doesn't have a fixed legal meaning nobody's going to be charged with a crime of collusion collusion is a political crime and in order to make out that political crime in a way that has a meaningful political effect namely one that leads to an uh, impeachment You have to show um, the underlying crimes, and those underlying crimes for which there is significant evidence is in and around particularly the question of obstruction of justice in terms of the underlying efforts, and then in terms of the underlying efforts, a series of conspiracy charges and charges having to do with campaign finance.
1: Okay. Uh, last question, Jeff. Uh, in the last time you and I talked, uh, we were under that government shutdown uh, that has since uh, found a short-term resolution, although it seems the United States staggers from one of these to the next with alarming regularity. But uh, the clock's already ticking before we see the next one. What's your sort of, uh, as a guy who spent some time south of the border, uh, what's your sort of take in, on what position Mr. Trump finds himself in now as we lurch towards the next one on a fairly rapid basis here?
5: Look, every president um and this is a very extraordinary and unprecedented presidency no doubt about it, but every president it's very common for presidents in their after in midway through their first term in office to have what member pre, pre, president obama called a shellacking whereby they basically lose control of uh one of the houses uh, and the, you get a divided government and then it becomes much less smooth sailing for that president going forward for the rest of his administration. Again, we saw this in with the Bush administration, the Clinton administration, Obama administration, it's the character of our of our modern political system is that, you know, basically if a president try, should try to get done what they can it, when they're at the um the zenith of their power usually where they maybe have other branches of government in the first and second year of their presidency and then after that they start to get significantly reined in so what they can do is limited because nobody will pass their legislation or they're constantly being investigated and that's what's happening um, with mister trump here um... so and the tool the president's use the nuclear bomb as it were is the kind of threat of a shutdown and congress can use that as well to create a kind of incentive because nobody wins over the longer term in those things what but what i think we're seeing now is we're seeing what the weakened um, President Trump looks like—a president who's going to be up for re-election in two years if he doesn't get impeached uh, before then. Um, more oversight, no majority in Congress, and so now when he plays brinkmanship by saying I'm going to shut down the government if you don't give me my wall, um, you know he's the one who's wearing that, right? And um, he sort of—I think people say, "Well, why did President Trump suddenly cave on this and at least buy himself some more time?" It was because it was really right at the point where people were gonna start not making their mortgage payments, right? Where people were, were um you know, um uh, there was gonna be a kind of mishap because people weren't showing up at work or were too tired to work at as air traffic controllers. Or as airport security, or and where you know not-for-profit organizations and state organizations that rely on federal funding to provide services for people, we're going to start to fall through. As soon as that started to happen, it goes to public order, it goes to public security, and then it becomes very, very serious. for the president and his bottom could fall out on, including his own supporters, and the risk of impeachment would rise precipitously. So I think he had no choice but to back out. And again, contrary to the proposition that the president is a good um, negotiator and has a plan, he acted like a pet. Petulant child, and all signs indicate that he has the strategic thinking of a petulant child. So he's going to be right back in that position again. And Congress, frankly, the Democratic-dominated Congress, and even the more reasonable minds in the Senate, you know, sort of hold all the cards because there's not really a will among the American people or the electorate to um, to fund a massive border wall beyond what's already there, which is intermittent fencing and in a fairly hardened. Um, wall. It would involve expropriation of land belonging to private ranchers all along the American Southwest, which would um, offend some of his core constituencies in key states. So Mr. Trump is really in trouble now, and um, the walls are closing in on in terms of not only you know, the evidence of, um, of the series of crimes, which, which can be described loosely as collusion, but also in terms of his leverage that he has to enact uh, his policies. Uh, but he does have these kind of nihilistic tools at his disposal If he wants to ru- it's shut down the government, stop people from getting paid, grind everything down to a halt, and trigger a national crisis, and then use that as an excuse to declare a state of emergency. He's made clear that he's willing to do that. Again, all behavior which comports with the behaviors of autocrats and dictators. Uh, throughout history, but not with the behavior typically of uh, leaders in democratic countries, let alone presidents of the United States.
1: Jeff, always a pleasure. Thank you, sir.
5: Thank you, Shane. We'll talk to you next week.
1: And that's Jeffrey Myers, lawyer and lecturer up at TRU talking about the Plankers Report and the Russia-Trump investigation. And that's it for today's version of the Woodford Show. We'll see you again right here on Radio NL, same time tomorrow.
0: 106.7 Logan Lake, 98.1 Blue River, 97.5 Ebola. From CHNL in Kamloops, a stingray radio station. This is Radio NL 610 AM, local news now.